The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today we are talking with members of the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, a program that provides early intervention for teenagers and young adults experiencing psychosis for the first time. Our guests today are Dr. Craig and Usher, who trained in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and is an assistant professor of psychiatry at OHSU. Yulia Naklashev, a social worker with the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, and Gail Kempler, a nurse and acupuncturist working in the psychiatric field. Uh, let's start out our, our discussion today um, just uh, in orienting our listeners for w- what the Early Assessment Support Alliance does and, and why it's come into being, if, if one of you wants to start. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having us on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, the Early Assessment and Support Alliance is a group dedicated to uh, helping families and helping individuals um, who are uh, dealing with uh, symptoms that they find uh, you know, frightening or odd uh, for the first time. Um, a lot of the clients that we work with um, have had their first hospitalization uh, on a psychiatric unit or uh, have a family history of someone else in the family who's had psychosis and they begin to be worried that their son or daughter uh, that a loved one in the family is, is uh, suffering symptoms that, uh, that are frightening to them. And um, so what we do is uh, we're dedicated to, uh, you'll, you'll notice we don't have a word schizophrenia. We don't have the word psychosis. We don't have mental health language in our, in our label. What we have is uh, early assessment and support alliance. What we're there to do is to help support families, um, help them, um, help them uh, better support the young people in their family and also provide an assessment. What is this? What's going on in family life? What's going on with this individual? And, and, and really taking a broad view of how we can help. And what is the rationale specifically of having the target group being 15 to 25-year-olds? Well, it, it comes out of, um, and I'm sorry to take the, <laughs> to, to take the lead here, but um, uh, this uh, the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, um, our work really comes out of research that was done originally in Australia, and uh, it was re- uh, research that was repeated by somebody named Bill McFarland, who's a psychiatrist in uh, Maine, in Portland, Maine, um, what these groups were able to show was that uh, by intervening early in family life, not just in an individual life, but having an individual come to an office, you know, 45 minutes or a half hour, once a week or once a month, but really intervening in family life, getting into people's homes, supporting them as best as possible, uh, that the outcomes for kids developing, uh, kids, I say kids, but, you know, young, young adults, 15 to 25, if we intervene in their life early and we can make a difference in family life, decrease the stress level, that is the biggest, you know, biggest predictor of uh, of health, uh, meaning enjoying life um, uh, six months out from uh, from an initial event. Say that initial event is hospitalization or um, uh, having difficulty in school. If we can intervene in that for six months, um, uh, by six months later, kids are a lot happier. This is over and above. What we typically think of as treatment for um, psychosis, which would be medications. Uh, If you look six months out from hospitalization, if family life is less stressful, people are doing better. So have they controlled in those studies for medication? And and what I mean by that is... um, if, if somebody were to get medication and not get the extra community care mm-hmm. versus somebody else who gets the community care but not the medication, is, have they been able to compare and contrast those? Yes, yes. And, and 
this may be my bias as an allopathic physician. Um, uh, in, in a lot of cases, um, both uh, was, was shown as being more beneficial, but certainly above and beyond medication alone with no community involvement was worse, uh, did worse than heavy community involvement and, uh, in a program like ours. Well, that's very fascinating. Let's um, let's orient our listeners a little bit about the term psychosis. Um, I don't know if one of you wants to speak specific to that. I know every, people hear the term and also hear the term schizophrenia, but I'm sure a lot of people don't really know what the difference is, what a psychotic episode is, and is there a relationship between psychosis and schizophrenia? So- Certainly, uh, psychosis, uh, the, the others are pointing to be, I want to point back to you in just a minute. Um, uh, psychosis, it's, it's, an unfortunate, uh, and it's an unfortunate term. It actually, if we really look to the root of the word, it actually means uh, a, a problem with the soul. So it's not a, it's not a term I, uh, I love. Uh, psychosis is, uh, we usually think of as being a sort of break from shared reality. And psychosis, obviously, uh, a break from shared reality can come from all sorts of different sources. It can come from having a high fever as a result of a severe infection. It could come after a surgery. It could come as a, as a result of recreational drug use uh, or even, um, uh, you know, medication, uh, prescribed medication use. Uh, what we think of as being that the, the signs of psychosis are uh, delusions, fixed false beliefs that aren't shared by, um, uh, by those, uh, those around you. Um, uh, we think of hallucinations, hearing things that other people don't hear, seeing other things that people don't see, feeling things, sensations throughout the body that, that um, don't necessarily have uh, an origin like a bug bite, uh, but still believing that you know, a bug is biting you. Some other um, uh, disorganized speech, a disorganized way of thinking, um, uh, that, and, and all of these things, we all know people that are disorganized. We all know people that hear things and see things, beautiful things that other people don't see. That's, that's what art is about. But what we're really talking about here is, uh, when we say psychotic symptoms, what we're talking about is things that are distressing to the individual, um, uh, that get in the way of, uh, that individual enjoying their life, enjoying work, enjoying studies, enjoying, uh, their closest relationships. Um, when, we use the term schizophrenia. What we really mean is a, a, that that is a term that uh, refers to the medical syndrome um, where an individual suffers uh, symptoms of psychosis for more than six months. And uh, we think of psych- uh, schizophrenia as being um, uh, sort of illness, an illness entity unto itself, uh, apart from drug use, apart from uh, some of the other sources that I talked of, uh, about psychosis. And, and psychosis would be a risk factor or a preliminary possible symptom for s- developing schizophrenia? So, yeah, we would say that someone was suffering psychotic symptoms and that, that it, they're at risk for these um, suffering these uh, on a long-term basis. And if so, then we would then call that schizophrenia. Okay, that makes sense. We're talking today with, the, with members of the Early Assessment and Support Alliance who are focused on the importance of early intervention for young adults uh, who are experiencing their first psychotic symptoms. Um, we, you were talking, Craig, about the importance of um, involving the community, and maybe, Yulia, you can talk as a social worker about this. Um, what are some of the things that the Alliance does um, other than the, uh, the medication approach that is unique to your program, and, and, and 
Why, why do you think that's important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly we're not a business-as-usual sort of model when it comes to addressing psychosis and schizophrenia. And one of the things that's especially important for us is really demystifying um, and removing the, the taboos and the, the stigma from, from the illness. So community education is really important for us. That means educating the families, educating the young people, educating our reference and the general public, whether that be schools or other sort of institutions. Um, and one of the things that's extremely important for us is to have the transdisciplinary approach that we do, working with an employment and education specialist, working with a nurse, working with an occupational therapist, and also social work and counselors who provide case management and therapeutic support, because we know that the combination of these things is what really helps um, affect healing on a sort of holistic uh, level. I think uh, one of the things that I see happens in our program is that as soon as somebody comes to our program, we don't just look at the client, but we immediately try and make connections with family, with friends. We have them come in, and there's a process which actually Yulia could talk more um, in depth about, but we have a, a process of joining up where you know we either meet with the family in our office, or if the family or the client does not want to come to the office, then we go to the home and we meet with them in the home and we have this process of joining up with the family finding out not just what the client needs are but what what is the family dynamic what does the family need um, help with in order to stay together and keep their connections as a family and keep their connections within the community so um, you know medication is certainly an option but there's so many other tools that we offer you know Yulia, again, can talk more about what we have as the multifamily groups where we bring families together to help each other and to problem solve together. Um, yeah, so we, we really are very much about um, community-based tools. So, And when you say a multifamily group, do I understand that correctly, that that's a, like a support group but of multiple families in that's one right. support group? Can you speak a little bit more about sure. how that works? Sure. <clears throat> so what we do is bring together the various families that are part of our program, and we bring these families together to be resources for each other as well as community supports. And the purpose of the group is... Um, First, first off is that social piece, bringing together people who may feel so isolated. Having that connection is already therapeutic in and of itself. And then on top of that is the problem solving that Gail talked about. So we come together on a weekly basis with the families, with the young people, and we talk about the stressors that the family members are experiencing, that the young people experience. And we, in a really concrete way, do action planning and resolution and make plans around those those challenges to reduce the stress and in, in, a, in a really hands-on way tackle those issues and at the at the next group we'll review the problem solving that was done and see what was effective and what the family learned and what all of the families can learn from that and we found the problem solving to be exceptionally effective not only in our program but in ESA programs um, throughout you know, throughout the state of Oregon. 
Are there some common stressors that you see uh, appear over and over again, some themes that show up in, in families with a family member first experiencing these symptoms? Absolutely. In the fancy term, we talk about expressed emotion, but really what we're referring to is um, families get understandably stressed by the experience of having a young person um, suffering from psychosis. So we really work on lowering that stress and we have suggestions or family guidelines that talk about things like going slow, taking things at the young person's pace, adjusting expectations, um, still sort of going on with business as usual, having the family live its life, but also setting limits when, you know, issues come up. And most importantly, all of these guidelines are related to reducing stress for all family members. So often what we'll see is um, just a very common thread of I would say a lot of a lot of worry, a lot of concern on the part of parents and caregivers, and we try to sort of help reduce that and manage it and talk about ways that we can cope with that and that we have a treatable situation here, that there's hope. We definitely offer hope and, and solutions. We have uh, in the, uh, usually within the first number of months that a family comes in, we try and what, what um, have what's called an education uh, workshop and where families come and the clients come and um, Craig and our doctor and Yulia and myself and all the different team members get up and we talk about what our functions are and um, try and demystify the term psychosis and get very real, you know, talk about the different trigger words that that a young person may encounter on, in the culture, like somebody saying to them, oh, you're crazy or you're, you know, you're wacky or you're, you know, and some of them aren't as kind as that. And we talk about it very openly. And I think that, um, you know, uh, one of the families I remember after that workshop, they were so grateful. They said, this really gives me me an idea of what my son or daughter is going through. I didn't really understand what that experience might be like. I was just mad at them because, you know, they wouldn't answer me or they'd go in their room and lock the door and stay in there for hours. Now I understand more of what that person's actually going through. And that's very empowering for the family to be there together, talking about it very openly with other families and, and us as, you know, as um, people from the team who are helping them. So... Yeah. Would you say that the um, typical person is someone who's self-referred or are they referred from a family member or a friend or is, is there not really a pattern in that regard? I'd say there's not really a pattern. We've, we've had referrals. Um, some, some kids have uh, uh, heard about the program from a friend and said, well, you know, I'm having a hard time right now, too. Maybe, and, and you and I are suffering some of the same things. Maybe I should look into this. Um, we've had uh, hospitals have referred um, some young uh, men and women to us. Uh, we've had some schools refer uh, young men and women, and also family members um, who uh, somehow were in the know. And, and you know, uh, part of why we're doing this spot, obviously, and, and why we're so thankful that you invited us is we'd really love, uh, we, we love to at least um, at least have a conversation with just about anybody who wants to, uh, uh, who wants to have an idea of what they might be going through, um, what are their risks, uh, what, what might help in this situation. Sometimes we meet people and we say, 
listen, we really had a great conversation. We're so glad that you came in. Why don't you come back and see us in three months or six months? Because we don't think that you necessarily need our program right now, but we want to we want to be a helpful resource if you need us. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the referral process has been actually quite fascinating, and and it's been. It's been really rewarding, I think, for the uh, for the entire team to get to know people and, and sort of. We've both seen some people who, um, uh, you know, who are, have unfortunately progressed to having some very severe symptoms and being quite frightened. To some people who are very casually coming in and saying, "Listen, I, this is what I'm going through right now. What do you think?" And and we've been able to to give them a sort of really great prognosis and say, "Come back if you need us." Well, assuming we, we might have some listeners who either are concerned for themselves or someone that they know, what are some of the uh, both warning signs or, or risk factors that, that people should be aware of that could help them l- decide whether or not to call the Support Alliance or not? No, our, our understanding of risk factors um, is is unfortunately uh, uh, poor. Some, some risk factors, um, one... Uh, one one strong risk factor is uh, having a family member uh, that had a schizophrenia spectrum illness. Um, uh, uh, somebody this could could range all the way from somebody who had schizophrenia and say was institutionalized twenty or thirty years ago, uh, back when people were institutionalized, um, to having a family member with uh, sort of fixed false belief throughout their life. Um, so having a family member with a schizophrenia spectrum illness uh, is certainly a risk factor. However, uh, if, say, someone has one parent who had schizophrenia, uh, the, the risk of, of developing schizophrenia is only 10%. Having two parents, it's only 30 to 40%. Um, so, and, and most people, 80 to 90% of people that develop schizophrenia do not have a family member. So that, it tells us something, but it doesn't tell us everything. Could you elaborate on the fixed false belief? A fixed false belief, it's another, uh, another uh, term for a fixed false belief is a delusion. An idea that, um, uh, say, uh, it could be everything from a mild conspiracy theory to a, a sort of theory that um, wraps somebody, you know, their, their whole life is wrapped up in that, that's not necessarily shared by those around them. Um, something that's distressing. So, are you saying that somebody could have a family member who has a f- who doesn't have schizophrenia but has a fixed false belief that could lead to a higher risk of of a psychotic episode or schizophrenia? Yes, yes. So, I, I'm just I'm going to deviate a little bit <laughs> okay. from from what we're talking about just out of curiosity. I know in the '70s that schizophrenia there was a trend in psychoanalysis with schizophrenia about psychogenic parents i mean schizogenic parents Mm -hmm. the idea that certain family systems particularly if you had a parent who uh was telling uh mixed messages to their kids Mm -hmm. that were making them disbelieve their own Mm -hmm. um, perceptions could lead to a higher risk of these episodes Mm -hmm. what do you feel about that that theory it's interesting when when i was in my uh residency training one of the first papers they had us read was about the schizophrenogenic mother uh, was with it, the title of it and we were asked to read this uh, because the uh, statistical analysis was so poor and the sort of the idea behind it um, uh, was essentially yes that um, uh, a, a mother could give their son or daughter schizophrenia uh, based on being um, uh, so uh, you know, quote unquote hysterical well what what we realize now is that if, if you look at uh, what family members um, uh, around uh, an individual suffering psychosis, what they're dealing with, it's extremely stressful. 
and how you deal with that stress may be um, uh, may seem quote unquote hysterical. People will be very scared around a family member who's not doing well, and so what they uh, what this paper uh, did and what this uh, sort of theory did was it, it mistook. Uh, uh, the result of psychosis for the cause of psychosis. Um, so we do not, uh, I, I want to make it clear, we no longer believe in the schizophrenogenic mother. Uh, it's a very interesting theory. I know I, nobody talks about it anymore, and obviously that's probably why. Yeah. Interesting. So um, one of the things that um, you speak about in your literature uh, at the Early Assessment and Support Alliance is the, that you guys are client-centered. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean specifically, and how is that different than it? than a conventional approach to to psychosis? Um, We think it's really important, um, as Gail said, to meet clients where they're at, whether that's literally physically in the community or in the home, or just where they're at um, in terms of their goals. So if a client's treatment plan goal is, I want to ride a bike again, we will put that in the treatment plan. Um, Their treatment plans are really authentic and speak to um, their needs. So rather than us as staff imposing our values or our goals for the clients, and certainly we have wellness goals and, you know, hopes for our clients, um, but rather than imposing what we think wellness means for a client, we really let them define that for themselves and we help support them and their families in actualizing their goals and um, that's definitely another example of not business as usual. Mm-hmm. Our, our um, This program is, is mandated through the state legislature through grant funding so we have and, and, and the um, grant is particularly centered around this ESA model, which has a lot more freedom than the usual mm-hmm. models that you see in the various state-run um, agencies, so to speak. So, you know, um, another very concrete example of client-centered is we have clients who come in and say, I do not want to take medications. They do not have to take medications to be in our program. We work, um, one of the things I want to make sure and say today is that we we take all denominations and we take all income levels. So our program for those who cannot afford it is free. And medications sometimes are a little tricky to navigate. We have, if, if they decide they wish to take medications, then we work to get what's called um, patient assistance programs to help. But that's that's a huge and wonderful thing that anybody that comes in can receive our services. And is it true, from what I've gathered, that people can call and there's some sort of initial assessment that happens around eligibility and appropriateness mm-hmm. for care. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, and that would be potentially free if somebody was low income enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we uh, we run the program for Washington County. Um, so we're centered out of uh, Beaverton, uh, just off the uh, max line on Milliken. Uh, there's a similar program in Multnomah County uh, for listeners in Multnomah County as well. Uh, we, we have our number for our intake, uh, which... Ilya, do you mind? Yeah. <laughs> Look on the back of the phone here. Yeah, our intake number is area code 503-705-9999. That's great. And do you have a website of any sort? Uh, we, You can reach our program through the... Oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed that we don't have this at our fingertips, but it, through the LifeWorks Northwest um, uh, website, also through the Washington County webs, uh, website. Yes. 
Well, we have a couple more minutes. I just wanted to, to um, I was curious if there were uh, lifestyle or diet um, um, behaviors that exacerbated symptoms that you ha- have to either manage or approach. And I was curious what, what those were. Well, um, I think in terms of uh, certain lifestyles, we have noticed that um, early and continued use of of, uh, drugs is a precipitating factor in many of our clients, either being, um, you know, maybe they were predisposed to possible schizophrenia or psychoses, but then they began using drugs at an early age and that became, you know, a realized factor that now they did become psychotic or, you know, and schizophrenic. So um, drugs and alcohol, I would say, um, exacerbate symptoms. Um, I... You know, I have beliefs. I'm an RN, but I'm also an acupuncturist. And so I have my own personal beliefs in terms of the factors that affect wellness. And so I, I see that, um, you know, a number of our clients do better when they make healthy choices regarding their diets, regarding exercise, regarding reducing their stress levels in their lives. Um, I do acupuncture twice a month, and sometimes it's the family members that come sometimes it's the clients that come sometimes it's both and a number of people talked about how um the acupuncture seemed to help them in terms of relaxation feeling more relaxed not not feeling so anxious so mm-hmm. you might want to one thing that's interesting on this is that um uh, schizophrenia is actually uh, an independent risk factor for um uh smoking addiction so that uh, we believe that there's a connection between uh, the desire to smoke and having schizophrenia that uh, is outside of medication use. Um, For some of our medicines, uh, some of the medicines that we use in psychiatry, actually um, uh, smoking can clear the medicine faster. And so it may be a a means of of managing side effects. But we've also found that for those that are not using uh, medications, uh, that uh, individuals with schizophrenia are more likely to smoke. Isn't it really high, something like 80 or 90 percent of schizophrenics who smoke? I can't remember the exact percentage. But I, I thought I remember seeing some very uh, surprising statistic our, our, that. Our, our personal, I think that's somewhat borne out in our, in our work with, uh, with, with families and clients. Well, one last question before we end today. At the beginning of the program, Dr. Usher, we, you mentioned the Australian study, which suggests that a community model uh, of and a family model for dealing with uh, young adults with psych- psychotic episodes or the beginning symptoms of schizophrenia is superior to just a medication model. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as a trend? Um, are you guys? Do you feel like you guys are the, a vanguard and a trend? Or yeah, I mean, I think part of it is a. Um, uh uh, I hate to use the term, but part of it's a paradigm shift. The idea, um, uh, medicines help manage symptoms, but families and individuals, um, uh, uh, relationships are the most important uh, part of everyone's life. And what we do is work on relationships, not on symptoms. Well, it was great having you guys here today. Yulia, if you could just give the phone number one last time, Absolutely. that would be great. 503 Nine, nine. And also to add, we um, have translators and we will work with folks speaking any language. Great. Well, it's great having you on Health Watch today. Thanks we, so much for having us. We were talking today with members of the Early Assessment and Support Alliance about early intervention for young adults with psychosis. Mm-hmm.